Our God calls us to worship this morning from Jeremiah chapter 9. This is verses 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. We come into God's presence and we are, we are absolutely reminded we have a God who has a steadfast love for us, a God who is righteous and a God who is just, and it actually shows us that we're not always loving, are we? We don't always act righteously. We don't always act in justice. And what God's word calls that is sin. And that's, that's our sin and our rebellion against God. And we come and we confess that and acknowledge that each week together. Today, we're going to be taking a look at Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth. And one, one pervading sin that, that, that God saw his people struggling with in the church at Corinth was the sin of pride. If you have a copy of the scriptures, I'd invite you to look at 1 Corinthians with me. So we're going to read a portion from the first chapter uh, because this chapter in this section really sets the stage for the rest of the book. Uh, if you're just joining us for the first time or if you've been here for a few weeks and forgot uh, or have forgotten, uh, we are looking at the entirety of the Bible this year. And in order to understand the message of the scriptures, we've tried to give you three numbers with which to understand the framework for each sermon. So the number three, do you remember what this stands for? Three loves, that's right. And we've gone over those at least four times so far in the last 20 minutes or so. Love God, love people, love place. Four stands for what? Four-part story. What's part number one? Creation, rebellion, redemption, restoration. Most of us have grown up with a two-part story and how to understand the Bible. Most of us have grown up thinking that everything is about rebellion and redemption. Most of us approach life through that binary lens of looking at people and thinking, well, we immediately think they're rebellious and we immediately think they need redemption or we immediately think they have uh, acknowledged the rebellion and they are redeemed. And we have forgotten that the Bible is actually a four-part story, that we need a robust view of creation. We need a robust view of rebellion. We need a robust view of redemption. And we need a robust view of restoration. The Bible is a four-part story, and that means we must approach life through that four-part story. So any issue you have, any issue you have, any person you meet, don't start with rebellion. Start with creation. Any complicated thing that happens in your life, any great thing that happens in your life, process that through restoration. Because we naturally just think about the other two. We need to process our lives through those four parts. Five stands for what? Five threads? Does that sound familiar? I don't think I've ever asked you these before, so I'm going to try it today. I'm not going to be offended if you don't remember any of them. In a way, it reminds me, no, this is good that I review every week because sometimes I think, man, they're tired of hearing this over and over. So it's okay if you don't answer. But anybody remember thread number one? Okay. 
God has always had a people. He's always building his church. Genesis to Revelation. What's the second thread? Anybody remember this one? Yes. Evil is real, but what? Never gets the last word. Isn't that awesome to think about? Like, yeah, we sin. Yeah, there's wickedness in the world. It never gets the last word. God does. Third thread. Anybody remember this one? Grace. God initiates, pursues, and saves. You see, rebellion is so bad that it actually renders us dead. And grace is so good, and God initiating, pursuing, and saving is so good and so powerful, it makes the dead alive. That's how amazing grace is. Grace isn't just, you know, added to uh, the good things we've done or some of the bad things, and grace just makes up for that. No, grace is so powerful, it resurrects spiritually dead people and ultimately will resurrect us physically and make us fit for eternity forever. All right, I can't go on too long. Four, anybody remember the fourth thread? He did it. Jesus actually accomplished something. He didn't die to make you savable. He didn't die to make salvation probable. He died to save people. Very, very important. He is a literal savior. He's not your help. He is your savior. He literally saved you. Five, everything is moving toward Jesus. Sound familiar? Everything in the Bible, everything in my life, your life, every event in history, all moving toward Jesus. All right, five threads. So three, four, five. If you understand those numbers, then you should understand and be able at least to understand the framework through which we're working our way through the Bible. So 1 Corinthians this morning will remind us of several things. It will remind us that God is always building his church. This was actually written to a group of people in Corinth, many churches more than likely. This will also remind us of the grace of God. It will remind us how uh, evil is absolutely real. So you're going to see at least those three threads prominently placed here in 1 Corinthians. Something make sense? Follow me so far? All right. Remember, we need the whole Bible to give us the whole Jesus for us to be whole followers of God. We need the whole Scripture. All right, 1 Corinthians 1, listen to this. You can bank your entire life on this word of God. Listen to this. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. 
Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, help us not believe anything about you that is untrue. Convince us who you really are. Convince us who we really are. And make the news that you have for us, news, good news, not advice. Help us to realize that your book, the word, help us to realize that Jesus is not advice. That the work of Christ is an announcement of what has been done. We pray this in your name, Jesus. We pray this through you, Holy Spirit, in your power. Amen. Over the last couple of weeks, we have been learning together how Jesus uh, crosses all barriers and breaks down every barrier. You might remember that from a few weeks ago. We've also been learning how Jesus brings people together who don't normally, uh, who wouldn't normally be together. That Jesus brings people together who are rich and poor, all kinds of races everywhere. Jesus is doing this over and over and over. He's been doing it throughout the world. And this morning, we're continuing on that trajectory. This morning, we're actually going a little bit deeper into how the gospel applies to everyone, every time, for anything. We're actually going to learn how the gospel is relevant for everyone, all the time, no matter what is happening. And here's the point. If you're someone that likes to take notes, if you're someone that wants to know the big idea so you can meditate on it throughout the week, here is the main idea of this text that I want to show to you. I want to show this to you. The gospel is God-centered. Got it? That's what I want to show you. The gospel is God-centered. That's the idea. And hopefully by the end of this, you'll see where this comes from in the text. All right, so here's where I want to begin. Do you all remember the saying about, the, about an elephant? How do you eat an elephant? Do you remember that saying? You know that question? One bite at a time. So this morning, as we're going to think about this idea of the gospel is God-centered, we are going to take three bites out of this text. So if you understand these bites, hopefully they'll help you understand the point that the gospel is God-centered. So here is bite number one. Here's the most obvious thing that you perhaps can see from the text as we read it together. The Apostle Paul is talking to different groups of people. He is talking to Jews. He is talking to Greeks and Gentiles, meaning he's talking to Jews and non-Jews. And each of those groups 
have different ways of processing reality. You know how sometimes you meet people and they're super introverted or super extroverted, or you meet people that are feelers or people that are super analytical. They process life differently. What Paul is saying is that I'm talking to Jews and I'm talking to Greeks, and both of these groups have different ways of processing life. They have different ways of making sense of reality, and that should connect with us immediately, especially now. I mean, don't you just feel like you're trying to figure out reality all the time, every day? If you're like the Osborne House, you're trying to figure out what a schedule might look like. And we've been trying to figure that out for the last seven months with my job, with school, with Jenny's work, everything. We've been trying to figure out how to process reality and what, if we're going to have a schedule, what that schedule is going to be, and if that schedule is going to last one hour or one day or a week. All of us are constantly processing life. Even if nothing else, most of us want things to get back to kind of normal, and we'd like to know how to get there. The Jews and Greeks are processing life, and here's the essence of it. Look in verse 22. This lays it out for you, makes it super plain. This summarizes these two groups. The Jews want a sign, and the Greeks or the Gentiles want wisdom. See that? Jews are seeking a sign. Greeks are wanting wisdom. You see, the Jews want a sign. This is something that is part of their history. If you read the Jewish people and read the Old Testament, read the history of the Jewish people, what you find out is that there were all these amazing events. A sign is like an event. It is a display of power. We've looked at some of these. Remember Sinai? You know, when the Ten Commandments were given, that's kind of a big event. Like the Exodus, big event. Water from the rock, big event. Sun standing still in the sky, big event. In the first century, Jewish, Jewish, Jews came up to Jesus and said, Would you please, if you want us to buy into this, if you want us to understand, you're going to have to give us a sign, Jesus. Over and over throughout the Gospels, you see that. This is part of who Jewish people are. They want a display of power. They want an event. Now, we should be able to connect with this too. How many of us, look, if you think about your life, how many of us are unsure how to make a decision and begin to think, I need a sign? So we look for a sign. We want some display of power as if to say, this will nudge me over the edge Let's try to make this mentality even more practical for our day and time. The Jewish people are people who would be fundamentally traditionally religious people. They would believe in the supernatural. They would be committed to understanding supernatural things. They would be looking for events. They would be very, very traditional in their beliefs and therefore would be somewhat skeptical about science because for them, prizing an event and a display of power meant more, which means this. This is the kind of person in talking about Christianity, or this is the kind of person that would say something like this. Show me. You want me to believe in Jesus? You want me to understand this Christian thing? You want me to understand the Bible? Well, you're gonna have to show me something. I need an event, I need a sign. Greeks, on the other hand, were very different in the way they processed reality. 
They weren't always looking for an event. Matter of fact, they were looking for wisdom. And when you hear that word wisdom in the first century, for Greeks, wisdom was not a pithy saying, as if you just pick something out of Proverbs and think, I'm going to make my whole life out of this one little quote. That's not what this is talking about. When Paul says that Greeks or Gentiles want wisdom, what he is identifying is this. Greeks want to understand the system. They want to understand how life fits together. They want to understand what life is. They want to understand death. They want to understand reality. They want to understand it all and how everything fits into a system. In other words, to make this more modern, these are people that have high, high values on reason, on intellect, Maybe even to the extent in which intellect is so important, rationality is so important that there is a bias against supernatural. You might even find some that think, you know, I prize rationality and intelligence so much that if you just give me enough time and if human beings have enough time, we can explain away whatever you might call a miracle, whatever you might call supernatural. In other words, the Greeks are the kind of people that process life through wanting to understand the system. They're the kind of people that look at you and say, lay it out for me. If you could just explain it to me, I will buy in. So the Jews are looking for an event. They want a display of power. And the Greeks are saying, this has to make sense. First bite. Paul is talking to two different types of people who process life in different ways. The second bite we're going to take together is this. The cross is what makes sense of our desires for event and an intelligent word. The cross is what makes sense of our desires for an event and an intelligent word. Look at verse 24. It tells you explicitly, Christ is both wisdom and sign. He's both. Paul is telling you. Paul is telling the Greeks. Paul is telling the Jews. He's telling us who process life in this way because most of us are both there are things in our lives where we're like, I need this rationally explained in order for me to buy in. And other times we're like, I need an event in order to understand that this is real. And Paul is saying both of those things, event and word, are profoundly important, but they are insufficient in and of themselves. If you're just looking for an event, that event is insufficient. If you're just looking for a rational understanding, that is insufficient. And here's why. An event in and of itself doesn't have the capability of changing your heart. When God gave the Ten Commandments, when he wrote them with his finger and Moses presented them, they needed the word to accompany the giving of the law. And that word was this, I am the Lord your God that brought you out of the land of Egypt and into the promised land. 
I am the one that redeemed you. I am the one that freed you. Therefore, here's 10 commandments. Do you see? They needed the word to explain the event of Sinai. Maybe let's make more practical. If you want to read this story, it's for you in Luke 24. There was this time um, when Jesus, uh, you know, the tomb was empty when he rose from the dead. And in Luke 24, there are these two guys that are leaving Jerusalem. And they're walking on the road out of Jerusalem. And they're trying to make sense of the reality that the tomb that Jesus was in was empty. And that event happened. That the tomb is empty, Jesus isn't there, and they're wondering what in the world is going on. And there's this guy that kind of sneaks up on them. It's actually Jesus, but they don't recognize him, at least not at first. And you remember what Jesus does? He doesn't, he doesn't immediately say, hey, it's me. I was in that tomb. Look, I'm right here with you. What he does is he takes them back through the Old Testament, In order to understand the resurrection of Jesus, he takes them back through the Old Testament to say, everything in the Old Testament is about me. Everything. And then they could see. You see, an event in and of itself isn't enough. We need the word that goes with it to explain it. And by the same token, we can't just have rationality because there are things that are beyond us. You see, here's the beautiful thing about contemplating what God says about us. Here's a beautiful thing about reading the scriptures and understanding the whole book of the Bible. We were actually made, like built, to understand that there are things that are beyond us. That's how we're made. We are actually made to recognize things that happen that are extraordinary miraculous, supernatural. We were made to understand and recognize events that are supernatural, and we were made to have rational explanation for things, knowing that as a human being, understanding my limits is good. God actually made us as human beings to understand that there are things that are beyond me and I am at rest with knowing there is something beyond me. But because of rebellion, we want to be God everywhere at all times in everything. And we want to take God and make him after our image. And we want him to answer all of our questions and fit into our boxes. But what Paul is saying is that because of Jesus, this is the only way that you're ever going to find rest. This is the only way that you're ever going to be truly human. This is the only way that you can ever understand how to process reality looking for event and word. Because Jesus is what makes both of those make sense. And the only way I know to illustrate this for you is to invite you to a scene. It's to invite you to use your imagination and come with me. This is the best I've got. Maybe if I were to preach this next week or in a year from now, I'll have a better way to illustrate this, but I don't for now. So please use your imagination. I would love for you to imagine yourself with this mentality of being Jewish and wanting an event 
or this mentality of being a Greek and wanting an intelligent word, I want you to imagine as you are right now, put yourself back into the first century. And I want you to imagine yourself walking through Jerusalem. And I mean this, with all that you are. That means whatever level of education that you have, whether you're in elementary school, middle school, or whether you have the highest degree possible, bring all of your intelligence with you, all of your education with you. Also, bring everything with you with your resources. If you have all kinds of resources, that comes with you. If you have no resources at all, that comes with you. That means all the people that you're connected to that have resources, you bring all of that with you. If you have no one that has any resources and you have no one that has, has, you don't know anyone that can help you in any conceivable way, bring that with you. I want you to bring all that you are, everything about your family, whether you have a great family, whether you have a horrible family, whether you have great reputation, whether you have a terrible reputation, bring that into imagining yourself in the first century. And as you got to the end of Jerusalem and just outside the city, I want you to imagine yourself with all that you are looking over and seeing these three people hanging. And there's someone who's with you. And that person says to you, do you see the one in the middle? Do you see the one in the middle? Yes. That is God's righteousness. That is God's wisdom. That is holiness. That is redemption. And my guess is, if you're super well connected and have a lot of resources, you're going to hear that and think to yourself, no way. That's crazy. What are you talking about? That's a dude hanging from a tree. And if you have no resources at all and have a horrific background and have no semblance of anything that you bring to the table and feel marginalized, you're going to hear those words and think, man, I sure hope so. Because the cross is foolishness to those who think that they are wise and who think that they bring a lot to the table. The cross is foolish. And to those who think they are someone or can be someone, stumble over the cross all the time. Because it just sounds bizarre, weird, may not even make much sense. And God is saying that is the event. Jesus' death on the cross. And the word to explain it, the intelligent word, is that that is God's righteousness and holiness and wisdom and redemption. Here's the third bite. So how... How does anyone follow Jesus? How does anyone follow Jesus? Well, when you look at the text, it may not see it immediately, but the answer is very plain, grace. This whole book, the whole Bible itself, is marinated in grace. How does anyone follow Jesus? Grace grace. Now, in order to try to get this into us more deeply, 
rather than thinking that here's just five things to do to go make this more powerful in your life. Realizing that what God says about the cross has to get deeper into us, that the gospel has to continue to get us and change us and stir us up. Let me ask you this question. If you're a follower, how do you know that you're a follower? And my hunch is you might say things like this. Well, uh, I prayed the prayer. I'm a follower because uh, I repented of my sin. I'm a follower because I grew up in the church. I'm a follower because I go to church. I'm a follower because I'm, I'm, I've been baptized. Um, and I want you to understand all of those answers are man-centered. And Paul and God through Paul is dismantling every man-made answer we could possibly come up with. Look at what he does in these verses. He connects the gospel with this idea of calling. You see, the word of Jesus, the message, the event of Christ, and the word that explains it, the gospel, is proclaimed. And some believe and some don't. So why do some believe? Because Paul says you were called. Look at verse 24. You were called. There's a connection between the proclamation of the gospel and calling. And if you look at verse 26, Paul is trying to make this super personal. He's saying, will you look in the mirror for a minute? How many of you are wise according to the world standards? How many of you are powerful according to the world standards? How many of you are noble? You see what he's saying? He's saying, look at yourself in the mirror and do a real hard look and think to yourself, look, does, does the world you live in, do they think that you're all that smart? The world that you live in, does the world think that you have a lot of power? Does the world look at you and think, my goodness, you are, you are from nobility. You're so important. Now, Paul is saying some, a few, but most of you, not at all. None. So why in the world do you follow Jesus? How in the world did you come to the point of following Jesus? How did that happen? Calling. And what's connected to calling? Look at verse 27, 28. It's God's choice. Three times in two verses, verse 27, 28. Three times it says God choosing. God has made a choice. God has acted. Let's try to make this even more plain. Why do you think God loves you? If you were to get with, if you were to get into a quiet place and it's just you and a piece of paper or you and a beautiful scenery in which your mind is just wondering, why does God love you? Do you think he loves you because you believed? Do you think he loves you because you obey? 
Do you think he loves you because you go to church? Do you think he loves you because whatever else? No. He loves you because he loves you. He doesn't love you because he saw that you had such potential. He doesn't love you for what he can get out of you. He loves you because he loves you. Let me try to even make this clearer. If you were to ask me, or if Jenny were to ask me, Dave, why do you love me? If I were to say to her, you know, Jenny, I love you because you are funny, and we have a great time together. I love you because... You're the prettiest girl that I've ever seen. I love you because you're smart. Do you understand at some level how offensive that would be? If I said those are the reasons why I love Jenny and that's it, you get the point, right? So I actually love her because of what she does for me, right? She wants to know, Jenny, I love you because I love you. Full stop. These other things are extraordinary and great. But I love you because I love you. Do you understand that that is what God is saying to us in Christ? He is saying, I love you because I love you. And if you think that I love you because you believed or because you repent, you know what? Let's go this route with it. Let's use an old illustration. This is not mine. This does not originate with me at all. If I were to ask you again, why are there some people that believe and some people that don't? If you were to say, well, I guess some people believe because, because they decided to believe. Okay, great. Why did they decide to believe? Well, I, I guess I was willing to admit that I was wrong. Great. Why did you want to decide that you could admit that you're wrong? Well, I guess I was willing to say that I'm a sinner. Great. Why were you willing to say that you're a sinner? And keep going and going and going until you get back to the core. And at the end of the day, you either think that you follow God and that God loves you because you're just a little bit better than everybody else. Or you realize that you love God because he first loved you. And the obedience that you bring to God is evidence that he has previously loved you and empowered you. The faith that you put in Christ is a gift that he authored and is perfecting in you. The going to the church and being part of Christ's body, yeah, is all the evidence that God has first loved you. The repentance is because God helped you see who you really are and you were willing to admit that because of his prior work. Do you see? The gospel is about grace. 
I'll try to make this even more clear. Look at verse 30. This is what he says. The gospel is connected to calling. Calling is showing us that God chooses people and that is entirely of grace. And when God chooses people, look at what he does. He be, it says in verse 30, because of him, you are what? In Christ Jesus. Do you see that? Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Not because of you, you are in Christ Jesus. Not because of your faith, you are in Christ Jesus. But because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. And that means that we come to this question. Well, how in the world can I know if I'm called? How in the world do I know if I'm called? How in the world do I know if God has chosen me? And here it is. You're in Christ Jesus. Well, what does that look like? It looks like this. Look at the next little phrase. God did this to put you in Christ Jesus so that Jesus would become, notice that, so that he would become righteousness and sanctification and wisdom and redemption. How can you know that God has called you? How can you know that God has chosen you? Because you see Jesus and you see, you see his righteousness. And that means that it's not your righteousness. We love to find our righteousness in our jobs, in our skill set, in our resume, in our reputation. It's why whenever we get pushed, we always go back to what we think our righteousness really is found in, our ability to be right, everything that we've done, all of our education, all of our money, all of our power, whatever that is. We're like, no, see, this is my righteousness right here. Just look at my record. But when God has worked in your life, you're saying, forget my record. I get Christ's, and his righteousness is perfect, and I claim his resume and I'm willing to admit mine is, you know, no good. Big pile of crap, if you want to take Paul's words. And holiness? When Jesus is becoming our holiness, what we're realizing is that, oh, yeah, I'm not as holy as I should be. We realize, oh, I don't measure up to what God has said. And we realize that holiness is becoming more like Jesus, thinking like Christ does, responding to people in the way that Christ does, showing mercy the way that Christ does, following the Father in the way that Christ does. It means that we understand Christ is our holiness. We want to become more like Christ. We're not trying to use God to get the results that we want. We want to be like Jesus. And we want to be with him. And we look forward to be with him. We look forward to being with him forever. And wisdom? When we understand that Christ is our wisdom, what that means is that we start looking at everything through the four-part story. We're thinking about creation for every issue. We're thinking about rebellion for every issue and redemption for every issue and restoration in every issue. It means that we're not living our lives as, as, as if everything is black and white, and because everything is black and white, you're either right or wrong, and if you're not on the right side of what I think you should be on the right side of, you're dismissed and removed. It's not looking at life as if everything is binary. It's understanding that there are some things in life that are black and white, and most of life is lived in the gray. But we have to figure things out, and it's very complicated and difficult, and oh, by the way, we have to be dependent, which we don't like. And redemption, 
It means that whatever you think is your best life, some of you might be living your best life right now, I don't know, but whatever you think is your best life, that's where you're finding redemption. That's what you're hoping for, for redemption. And when you understand that Christ is redemption, you know that Christ is your life. Like to live is Christ. To die is gain. So that redemption, my life is completely bound up with him. He is my identity. What is true of him is true of me. That is astounding. And all of this is so that Paul can get to the glorious conclusion. So that no man may boast. Our only boast is in the Lord. Do you see? Everything is of grace. And when Jesus is my righteousness, and when Jesus is my holiness, and when Jesus is my wisdom, and when Jesus is my redemption, and when all that is because of the grace of God choosing me, and when that's because I heard the gospel, it means that my life is lived to give glory to God. It means that the gospel is God-centered. The gospel is not man-centered. The gospel is not how we use God to get results that we want. The gospel is where we see God has done it all. And our lives reflect that. And we live with greater dependence on him. Beloved, God is determined to bless you. He not only desires the gospel to be preached, but he continues to call us to himself, to live for him in the world. So if you would please stand, receive God's blessing, and know that this is what God has purposed to do in you and to you and through you because of Jesus and that Christ is alive. So receive this blessing and try to live as if you actually believe it's true this week, no matter what you're doing. Try to live by his words rather than your own. The Lord your God is going to bless you and he is also going to keep you. This week his smile is upon you and he's gonna continue to be gracious to you. In the age to come forever and ever and even today, beloved, his presence is with you. And one day he will make all things new and bring peace. It's true because our Christ is alive. Go in his peace. Amen.